Welcome. You are listening to Audio from the Table. If you'd like to learn more about our community or donate to this ministry, please visit thetabletx.com. Grace and Peace Table Podcast listeners, Brett here. So glad to be with all of you yet again. So this is the season of Lent in the church calendar. And for those unfamiliar, Lent is a 40-day time of spiritual preparation as we approach Good Friday, that's the day of the cross, and then on to Easter Sunday. So we're in part three in our series titled Lent, the Way of the Cross. And the title of the message this week is Christ the Substitute. Christ the Substitute. So I should give you a quick little heads up. So I would say the last few weeks have, uh, if you've been with us, they've been a bit more like preaching, you know, announcing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, This week is going to be different. I'm trying to bring a little balance. This is going to be more of a a teaching uh, type talk. So the emotional tone will be quite different. Boy, last week was so intense. I didn't realize it until I got into it and I realized it just yeah, it occurred to me like, oh, wow, this is <laughs> this is a lot. So this week's a little more laid back. Uh, so, you know, kind of like put on your thinking cap. It's that kind of um, that kind of week. So let's just start here. The New Testament has uh, many of what some some people call them theories of the atonement. Um, atonement just refers to what was happening on the cross and how Jesus atoned, you know, for sins. Um, now, but I want to name, I think the language of theory theories of the atonement. It's sort of weird. Like it's, I mean, it's certainly not a phrase found in the Bible and really just the term theory is too academic. Um, think of it more like there are a number of different, um, themes like recurring themes, approaches, stories, motifs. Uh, maybe you can even call them parables reflecting on what the cross, uh, was and is all about. And the reason there's different ones of them, right? Not just like one, um, is because the event of the cross was, I mean, for us, it's so familiar, you know, but for first century Christians, oh my gosh, it was a trauma, like a rupture, just an unthinkable act to occur to God's own son, and, and what it did is just it forced generations of Christians back to their Bibles, um, which at that time, of course, would have been the Old Testament, to begin to reflect again and again on the meaning of the cross. And because of that reflection, of course, they didn't come to just one specific meaning. Um, instead, they came to several differing, though like not contradictory, but just differing themes and motifs and and kind of approaches stories of the cross. Uh, for example, one we'll, we'll to unpack this one more next week um, is the idea of Christ the victor. And uh, in this understanding, sin is um, capitalized. It's, it's less just like bad things people do. It's more like it's a power. It, it's a, an agency. Um, sin is, is a, a creeping, malevolent evil. It's, it's a force opposed to everything good. Um, and in the cross, sin and death did their worst to Jesus, but Christ has fought them, has overcome sin, law, death, and in resurrection has been announced the victor. 
and Christ now leads us all in a victory march. So you can hear where like that motif kind of ties in with one we talked about last week, um, which was the harrowing or the assault of hell, where right Christ goes all the way down, down, down into hell, um, but not to lose, no, to to reach us and others at our worst and to bring us out. So that's kind of a variation on um, a Christ the victor theme. Um, another though, like motif we could talk about would be um, like the the blood of Jesus, which theologian Fleming Rutledge um, points out is often very misunderstood by modern Christians. Like, you know, any talk of the blood, we just, we just kind of find it weird, distasteful. I mean, it is, you know, sounds just kind of violent. And um, the thing is, though, like many of the parables of the cross, we need to to hear it with the ears of a poet. Um, and this is Rutledge's point. You know, she points out that like when Christians say, you know, sing about the the blood of Jesus that washes me um, clean, you know, or um, if we say um, our name has been written in the Lamb's book of life with the blood of Christ. Uh, you know, it's not that God literally has some sort of ink pen that he dips in a small bowl of Jesus blood to write our name in some literal actual book in the heavenlies. <laughs> It's um, what Rutledge points out is it's poetry. It's poetic language. Uh, and it's the blood there is sim- it's symbolic, right? It's it's a, kind of a metaphor for um, the, the essence of Christ's life. And so it's it's really a way of saying and kind of poetic, very intense language. Christ's life has been given for me, for us. His his blood has been shed for us. Um so that's a whole other, you know, kind of motif way of thinking about the cross. Um, but that language for us, for us, that, that brings us to our key motif, our key theme of the cross um, this week. And it's really a way of thinking about the cross that has come under fire in the last uh, like 50 years or so. Um, especially in more progressive Christian circles, it's it's rather disliked, um, and it's this notion uh, of the that that Christ died as our substitute. Uh, now, part of the aversion to this is that in more say like conservative traditional um, Christian circles, this way of understanding the cross has become not simply one way among others to reflect on the cross of Christ. You know, one key motif among others. It is like the way, the only way to think about the cross, then you kind of combine that, which as we'll get into some kind of poor theological reasoning and some very bad, poorly chosen metaphors. Um, We preachers can be guilty of bad metaphors kind of, you know, surrounding it and, you know, all that added together. It's just, it's no wonder that many have begun to shy away from this, um, this motif of the cross. And really all the controversy stems from one little recurring Greek word. And that Greek word is huper, huper, which means for, on behalf of, in place of. So in this understanding, uh, Christ dies not only to win the victory over sin, death, hell, law, the devil, and such, uh, you know, but here Christ died for me on my behalf or in my place. That's like the turn of phrase that really gets our goat. Uh, like almost as though I deserve some sort of, you know, punishment for my sins. Um, but the thing is there, there, 
it's hard to argue that this isn't found in the scriptures. Um, there are a number of scriptures that, that seem to really center this understanding of the cross. Here's a few of them. Here's uh, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's the huper. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Uh, or here's 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Uh, the righteous for, who bear, for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Uh, that, of course, was when we looked at um, last week. Uh, here's Isaiah 53. Uh, so this is Old Testament. So the, the Greek word who bear isn't included because it's um, written. The original language is Hebrew. Uh, but you can still hear the, these kind of concepts rumbling around. So Isaiah 53 verses 5 through 6 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him, that is Christ, the iniquity, the sin of us all. Okay, so, so what are we to make of this? Well, the thing is, there are several um, thoughtful objections that theologians, um, philosophers, various um, really intelligent folks have, have brought up um, when we begin talking about Christ as our substitute on the cross. And um, I should mention, I drew these, I changed the language some because hers is a little more academic, but I drew these from Fleming Rutledge and kind of tried to condense them and... Um, and then I also want to offer a few responses after this. So we'll kind of have lots of points in this message. Well, I'm going to offer three objections and then three responses. So um, here's objection number one to this, this notion. The idea of Christ's substitution just doesn't make sense because an innocent person cannot take on the guilt of another. So that's the objection. Uh, for example, you know, some preachers, like when they're, they're preaching on this idea um, of, of the, the atonement, um, they'll say something like this. Imagine that you were guilty of some terrible crime and the jury went through this long trial process and uh, at the end, they all said, yes, we indeed find you guilty and we've decided for the death penalty. Um, however, then in this kind of dramatic moment, the judge who's been presiding over this, this whole trial um, stands up and says, I will take your place. I will go to death on your behalf. And the preacher says, see, this, this is what Christ has done. He is the judge judged in our place on our behalf for us, right? Who bear? Now, the, the response that this objection makes is, hmm, okay, well, that just doesn't make sense. A courtroom would never allow such a thing. You can't, <laughs> you can't do that. People can't just take on the guilt of others. Uh, I mean, if a judge tried to do this, they'd be like, nope, no, no, sir, no, ma'am. Sorry, no, you cannot go to jail or certainly not to death on behalf of other people. That's just not how 
guilt and justice works. So, um, okay, so you kind of get it. That's the first objection um, to Christ as the substitute. All right, objection number two. Notions of Christ's substitution are divine child abuse. Okay, what does this mean? Well, imagine uh, a kind of different revival meeting and here the preachers attempting to announce the gospel. And so they say, imagine that your father became very, very angry um, with you over your wrongdoing and and you were going to be punished severely. However, then your older brother nobly stood up and said, no, dad, don't do it. I'll take the punishment. And the preacher with a certain rhetorical flourish says, see, that, that is what Christ did. He took God's wrath upon himself so that you could be spared and saved. Okay, so this objection basically responds, uh, well, that is gross. That's like <laughs> just a whole messed up thing. Like God here just sounds like some abusive parent who needs to vent on someone And uh, of course, I mean, this is like, you know, actually how things can play out in abusive households and such, Um, you know, where one, for example, like a parent might try to kind of distract and take the abuse to shield the children, or perhaps, you know, one child will distract and take the abuse so the others can avoid it. And so, you know, you just get this whole, um, yeah, problematic image here. Um, All right. So that's objection number two. Objection number three. Notions of Christ's substitution depict a vindictive God. Now, this obviously just kind of names something that's already implicit in the first two objections, but I do think it's helpful to name it clearly. So Rutledge quotes um, a French writer, Antoine Vergate, Vergatois, I don't speak French, so I'm not sure how to say that last name. Um, but this writer, Antoine, we'll go with that, <laughs> uh, said this. Can one imagine a more obsessional phantasm than that of a God who demands the torturing of his own son to death as a satisfaction for his anger. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a good objection. Um, Cause basically it's asking like what, what kind of image of God is lurking in the shadows here? Okay. So that's obsession or <laughs> obsession. That's objection. Number, um, number three. So, all right, so what are we to do? Like on the one hand, uh, it's really difficult to say that scripture never has the notion of Christ dying as our representative or as our, our substitute, you know, a substitute for us and for our sins and our place um, in mind. But on the other hand, I mean, these are some like darn good critiques. So, okay, well, here's where my own, um, my own thoughts go. I'm going to offer three responses. Response number one, um, keep in mind, context is king. Um, I, I totally agree that, for example, there's something really outlandish, kind of stupid, even harmful about, say, our kids ministry preaching a message. I'm imagining this in like the older kids classroom with the, you know, the fourth graders and the fifth graders, whatever, like saying, all right, kids, uh, you know, raise your hand if you've ever told a lie. Raise your hand if you've taken someone's toy. You know what? You deserve the cross. You deserve to die on that cross. Oh, but the good news is that Jesus went to the cross for you, right? Ew. <laughs> this is like, this is so stupid. Like it just, it, I mean, it would be silly if it weren't so potentially psychologically damaging. Like the, the punishment just doesn't fit the crime. 
Like, it's just outlandish. Um, however, it was the, the psychologist and Christian writer Richard Beck, who I've, I've quoted often, we did a whole series on his book, Unclean. And he actually helped me clarify some. Uh, that context, though, really does matter um, when it comes to this idea of Christ as the substitute. Um, you see, Beck teaches a weekly Bible study in a, a local prison outside Abilene, Texas. And, you know, being a, a theologically kind of progressive Christian himself, uh, for many years, he, he shied completely away from ever using substitutionary language um, when talking about the cross. Uh, partly because he knew like all the objections that you know we just named above and, and others. So instead what he tended to do was just opt for Christ the victor themes, you know, in his his teaching. Um but one day, if I recall correctly, I think they were studying Isaiah 53, this the passage we we read earlier from the Old Testament, um, with the inmates. And as they started to kind of discuss it, you know, because it wasn't just a lecture, he's dialoguing, it's a you know Bible study style, uh, what he realized was that so many of them were struggling terribly with guilt. They were guilty of things that absolutely haunted them. Uh, I mean, we're talking, you know, murder, um, infidelity, rape, abuse, sometimes of their own kids. And, and so Beck began to very gently unpack this approach to the cross with them. And he noticed... Uh, it, it just, it spoke to their situation, to their own um, hearts and minds so powerfully. I mean, it was bringing some of them to tears. In fact, if you were um, with us last week, I preached a message that was kind of similar to what Beck was doing, right? Where I named that, that many of us have done things that we feel are unforgivable, we are haunted by guilt. So this notion of Christ as our substitute, um, at, you know, at that moment, in that context, it, it often doesn't actually strike us as offensive or outlandish, um, but at, like there's some truth in it. Like it's, it's kind of, there's, there's accuracy in it. Um, it speaks to our situation. Um, but I do think what we have to keep in mind, though, and understand is that this, this substitutionary language, this approach, this, this metaphor for the cross, it is very, very strong medicine. So you won't, you just won't hear me preaching messages like on this topic or like the one last week, um, you know, week in and week out. I just think that gets kind of, um, just out of balance, like that would, well, it would be exhausting for all of us, me included. Um, having said that though, boy, I think a few times a year, can it be the medicine we need? Or at certain points in our life, depending on what we've done, um, like that, it, yeah, it becomes, I think, very, very, uh, a powerful way of thinking about the cross. So, okay, so that's response number one. Keep in mind, context is everything, right? A pre-K Sunday school class is completely different than adults struggling mightily with um, guilt and shame and such. So, okay, uh, response number two. We need a poetic ear and a flexible theological imagination, uh, not one that's just too, like, overly logical and wooden, 
Um, you see, I will admit, like, to have this understanding of the cross kind of sing for us, um, kind of like the, we did with the notion of the blood of Jesus that I mentioned earlier, we're just going to have to gain a little more poetic ear and, and not strain the metaphors too far. Um, otherwise, I think it does indeed just strike us as kind of strange and gross. Um, like you'll recall, objection number one was, you know, just this idea that it's just rationally incoherent. person can't take on the guilt of another. Um, but that's where I think we need a little more flexible theological imagination. We need uh, to kind of hear the poetry of it. Because keep in mind, we are talking about God here, not just random human beings taking the place of each other. Uh, and, and there is a certain profound mystery of what God um, was doing for us on the cross. So while it's true, a human cannot take on the guilt of another human, you know, I think we need some imagination here. Who's to say what God can or cannot do? So, um, so that's kind of response number two. We need a poetic ear, not just the ear of like a logician who wants to like, well, I want to figure it all out and make sense of it all. Um, we need some, some to hear the poetry of it. Um, all right, response number three. Keep in mind, Trinitarian theology is absolutely essential. By Trinitarian, I mean an understanding of God as Father, Son, Spirit, as loving relationality itself. Um, you'll recall the second objection was the charge of divine child abuse. Um, I mentioned that weird analogy. You know, many preachers are fond of about like the angry father who's going to punish the child. And then the, you know, the, the older son, Jesus steps in and says, no, dad, hurt me instead. Okay. That, yeah, that, this metaphor is so bad um, because that would be divine child abuse. Um, but that's like very bad, unorthodox theology. It's a terrible metaphor. Um, why? Because the whole idea is precisely not that God, the father is like, son, get on that cross. You know, Jesus is like, oh, what? Why me? No, not at all. The notion is that the father and the son with one divine will, they together, they will to go to the cross. Like the whole gospel is Jesus like knowing exactly what he and the father will. Um, this is God giving God's self on our behalf. So I think in its more orthodox strains and using better, like, or I should say avoiding really crappy, terrible metaphors. Um, this isn't really a picture of divine child abuse. It's a, it's a picture of um, like a sacrificial love. I guess if I had to sum up um, not only this point, really the whole the whole message, um, I would say it like this. The notion of Christ as our substitute was not intended to be a picture of an angry, bloodthirsty deity venting his wrath upon his son. Uh, it was a picture of God's self-sacrificial love for us and all creation. Right? That's the heart of this way of thinking and speaking about the cross. So, Yes, it is strong medicine, um, but sometimes I, I, I just think that's the medicine we need. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.